developing your passion into a business with Shopify and break sales records with the world's best converting checkout. Let's hear that one more time. The world's best converting checkout. Shopify's legendary checkout makes it easier for customers to shop on your website, across social media, and everywhere in between. Now that's music to your ears. Any way you spin it, you can be a smash hit with Shopify. Start your dollar a month trial today at shopify.com slash records. You're listening to a Roddenberry podcast. This episode of Mission Log is sponsored by ExpressVPN. Be smart. Stop paying full price for streaming services and only getting access to a fraction of their content. Get your money's worth at expressvpn.com slash missionlog. Don't forget to use our link at expressvpn.com slash missionlog to get an extra three months of ExpressVPN for free. Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. Episode 452, The 37th. Welcome into another episode of Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. I'm Norman Lau. And I'm John Champion. Each week on Mission Log, we follow the leads wherever they take us, exploring one episode of Star Trek at a time, having a look at the morals, meanings, and messages along the way. This week, the 37s, the one in which the Voyager crew gets to take a crash course in Earth history and decide if the trip home is really worth the effort. I'll be right back with trivia just after Norman tells all of you how to reach us. Mission Log is a conversation about Star Trek. Drop us a line at missionlog at roddenberry.com and join us on Twitter and Facebook at Mission Log Pod. While you're at it, leave us a review and a rating at Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast platform. And please remember, your comments could be used on Mission Log or Engage on the Roddenberry YouTube channel. And now, here is John Champion with this week's trivia. All right, trivia for the 37s. We have an episode written by Jerry Taylor and Brandon Braga uh, for two of Trek's most prolific writer-producers at the time. This is actually the only episode that they are credited together on a story and a screenplay. But, as we all know, they have their hands in so much of Voyager from the get-go. This was directed by James L. Conway, and this is the first time we're seeing Jim on Voyager. He is only credited with three TNG episodes and seven at DS9, including favorites like Duet and Little Green Men. And before and after those assignments, uh, he's got his hands into just about everything from commercials to documentaries to features and TV. We will see him three more times on Voyager before catching him again on Enterprise. We mentioned last week that there were more episodes shot during the first season than were actually aired. This is, of course, one of them, and it was indeed supposed to be the finale. But because of all the last-minute decisions and some disagreements within the production, this one changed a bit from one part to two parts and back again to one. Some production decisions were put off to the last minute, and we can talk about some of the shortcomings that resulted later in the podcast. Oh, uh, one of our favorite locations is heavily featured here, Bronson Canyon. And um, let's talk about that airplane. The wreckage that we see in the episode is indeed a Lockheed Model 10 Electra, uh, a modified E-type of that plane specifically is what Amelia Earhart actually flew. Those planes were manufactured starting in 1934, and 149 total were built in various configurations. Some were private, some were for passenger service, uh, though they only held about 10 passengers plus cargo. There are still many of them on display around the world, a few of those still being airworthy worthy, and at least one was flown in the late 1980s. A couple of those remaining planes were purchased and restored by aviators with the intention of taking Earhart's route to completion, uh, but alas, they did not embark on those trips. Now, about the real Amelia Earhart. 
born in 1897, and it's hard to overstate her contribution and influence on aviation and the women in the industry. She was the first woman to fly solo across the Atlantic. She helped form the 99s, which is still an organization for women pilots. She was famous in her day as a writer, speaker, and advocate for women in aviation and for the commercial airline industry in general. In 1936, she first attempted what would be the longest circumnavigational flight. Fred Noonan was a very experienced airman and navigator. He actually was a ship captain in addition to being a trainer and navigator for Pan Am. He was the second navigator to sign on to Earhart's attempted around-the-world flight after one proved to be uh, not so accurate in test flights. The 1936 flight was aborted due to mechanical issues and damage sustained during a ground loop incident in Hawaii. A year later, after extensive repairs, Earhart and Noonan alone set out for the first flight from Oakland, California to Miami, on to South America, Africa, the Middle East, India and the East Indies, Australia, New Guinea. They made it over 22,000 miles, but failed to arrive at Howland Island, which was to be their last stop before Honolulu, and then finally back to Oakland. There are many, many details that have been reported and poured over by professional researchers and amateurs alike. The long and short of it is that there was a breakdown in radio communication between Earhart's plane and the Coast Guard ship that was waiting at the uninhabited Howland Island. The plane never showed up and has never been found, and there have been no trace of Earhart or Noonan's remains since. That launched many reasonable theories about their disappearance and demise, as well as some pretty fantastical claims, both conspiratorial and supernatural, none of which have been borne out with evidence. So that's where we are today. Finally, let's have a look at our guest stars. The only human descendant we really get to know is John Evansville, played by John Rubenstein. But really who we want to focus on are the 37s. There's the farmer, Jack Hayes, played by Mel Winkler. He showed up early in a recurring role on the soap opera The Doctors, and you may have caught him later in his career on screen in Lois and Clark or Babylon 5 guest spots or in the feature film Doc Hollywood. He also did a lot of voice work in numerous superhero animated series and features. In fact, he was the voice of Lucius Fox in The New Batman Adventures. James Saito plays Nogami, the Imperial Japanese Army officer. Like a lot of Trek actors, James has had a thriving theatrical career in addition to TV and film. If you didn't catch him on Broadway in The King and I, you probably have seen him in any number of guest TV roles. And he had a recurring appearances, well, multiple recurring appearances on MASH. If you grew up with Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, though, you know that James was the Shredder in the 1990 TMNT movie. The historical Fred Noonan is played here by David Graff. You may not immediately place his human face here, but we did see David as a Klingon in the DS9 episode Soldiers of the Empire, though that one was produced and aired after this episode of Voyager. His wife, Catherine, was also a DS9 guest star in an earlier episode. It's fun to note that he was a game show contestant when he was a struggling actor, and he did manage to win 10 grand from the $25,000 pyramid. But you may best know him as Officer Tackleberry from the Police Academy movies. Sadly, we lost David in 2001 at the age of 50. And finally, Amelia Earhart herself is played by Sharon Lawrence, another longtime stage actor who easily transitioned back and forth to TV and the occasional film. Sharon is best known for her multiple award-nominated role as Sylvia Costas in NYPD Blue. She didn't pick up the Emmy for that one, but she did get the SAG Award for it in 1995. She has had far too many recurring and regular roles to get into here, but it's fun to note that Sharon was well acquainted with Star Trek at the time that she got this role, and she was particularly delighted to be co-starring with Kate Mulgrew, whom she had already admired as an actress. The two got along great. And even though this is Sharon's only Star Trek appearance, she speaks fondly of the experiences Earhart and her time with Kate. Most recently, you can find Sharon in the revival of Dynasty and on the series Joe Pickett. Welcome to the Delta Quadrant, and remember to keep on space trucking. 
Prologue. As Voyager continues her journey home through the Delta Quadrant, Harry's sensors pick up high levels of ferric oxide and corroded iron particles. In basic terms, rust. And not just rust, but traces of complex hydrocarbons as well, along with traces of benzene, ethylene, and acetylene, which Tom Paris understands to be gasoline, or the liquid fuel that 20th century vehicles used centuries ago on Earth. And speaking of 20th century vehicles, Tuvok sensors suddenly lock in on a small object, which appears to be an old, rusty pickup truck. Act 1. After securing the ancient vehicle in Voyager's cargo bay, the bridge crew investigates it for any clues of how it managed to be not only in space, but in the Delta Quadrant. Tom Paris, much to the surprise of his crewmates, is a fountain of knowledge and an aficionado of 20th century antique vehicles. On sight and smell, the vehicle appears to be a horseman newer hauling 1936 Ford. But what is it doing in the Delta Quadrant? As Janeway and her crew try to suss out the mystery at hand, Tom fires up the engine, much to Tuvok's dismay, as it pops, sputters, and fills the cargo bay with noxious smoke. A curious Harry points to a piece of technology underneath the steering wheel, and Tom says it's an amplitude modulation receiving device, or AM radio. But it wouldn't receive any transmissions in the Delta Quadrant. But when Tom turns the radio's knob, much to Edwin's diff belief, it broadcasts a signal pattern which Balana runs through the ship's database. The transmission is identified as an old Earth distress call known as an SOS. Janeway wants to know why this signal wasn't picked up earlier, as Harry explains that it's just old and overlooked pre-subspace communications technology. However, he does track the signal to a nearby Class L planet, which is protected by a dense, trinimbic atmosphere, making transporting to the surface or even using shuttlecraft dangerous, if not impossible. In order to reach the surface and continue their investigation, Janeway orders both antique car aficionado and pilot extraordinaire Tom Paris to land Voyager on the planet, which he expertly does for someone who has never attempted anything like this before. Tom is just full of surprises in this episode, isn't he? Act 2. Upon reaching the surface, Janeway divides the away team into two parties and sends Chakotay on his way to investigate a power source, as Harry and Tuvok follow the captain towards the distress signal. After a short while, it leads them to another mystery in the form of an old aluminum Earth aircraft and the source of the SOS broadcast. Inside, Harry discovers that the AM transmitter is connected to some type of alien fusion power source, which is why it's still broadcasting. Meanwhile, Chakotay's team has located the source of the Tritanium reading, which is deep within an abandoned mine shaft. However, once both away teams reunite and venture deeper into the mine's tunnel system, they come upon a strange cavern filled with alien technology. Balana believes the vertical pods inside the cavern are some sort of cryostasis chambers. Scans indicate that there are many such chambers nearby, but this cavern is the only one with people inside their stasis pods. However, after inspecting several tubes, Janeway is able to identify a female wearing a leather jacket adorned with gold wings. And on her jacket is a name tag, A. Earhart. And Janeway believes this person to be Amelia Earhart. Later in Voyager's briefing room, Janeway gives her bridge crew, especially Harry, a history lesson on Amelia Earhart, one of Earth's first and most famous pilots who went missing while trying to fly around the world. Her disappearance went unsolved, and it was even rumored that she and her navigator Fred Noonan were abducted by aliens. Based on their tricorder data, it appears that all eight people in those stasis chambers are from 1930s Earth. Janeway believes that these eight people may hold the answers to Voyager getting back home. After returning to the stasis chamber to wake the eight from their slumber, and using only human-looking crewmen to reduce the shock from their disorientation, Janeway and her team suddenly come face-to-face with literal human history. Act 3. As the eight humans begin to thaw from their cryogenic stasis, they are understandably disoriented and distrusting of the strangely clad strangers standing in front of them, armed with strange weapons and waving strange blinking devices. Captain Janeway tries to explain what has happened, that they all have been abducted by aliens and have been asleep for over 400 years. And even though her universal translator is able to communicate her intentions effectively, the fact remains that Amelia Earhart, and especially Fred, her overprotective navigator, are beyond skeptical, to the point where Fred pulls out a hidden revolver and holds Janeway and her crew hostage. When Chakotay hails the captain, Fred replies, demanding to talk to someone named J. Edgar Hoover. 
Chakotay and Tuvok then assemble a detail to mount a rescue. Janeway tries to appeal to Earhart's more level-headed nature. Janeway even tries to convince Amelia by way of showing Kess's ears that there is a wide and vast galaxy filled with more than just human life. However, Earhart remains cautious and skeptical, as does Fred, who Tom believes is vulnerable thanks to the booze Fred has been recently nipping from a hip flask. Instead of trying to overwhelm a possibly drunken Noonan, Janeway appeals to Earhart, sharing with her foreknowledge of Earhart's secret reconnaissance mission against the Japanese, which persuades her and in turn persuades Fred and the other humans to leave the mineshaft to see Voyager as proof of what Janeway said is true. Meanwhile, Chakotay, Tuvok, and their rescue detail making their way to the mineshaft are attacked and pinned down by enemy fire. Act 4. As Janeway leads the rest of the humans to the surface, they are met with random enemy fire and Fred takes a direct hit to the chest. Janeway surveys the area and sees Chakotay and Tuvok in the distance. She formulates a tactical plan which allows her to double back on the alien's position under cover fire. Finally taking them by surprise, Janeway stuns one of the three assailants as the other two, a man and a woman, remove their armor and reveal that they are human. They are surprised to see that Janeway is human as well, and not one of the Briori, a race of aliens who have ships similar to Voyager. Later in sickbay, Fred Noonan believes that he is on his deathbed and confesses his true feelings for Amelia, feelings he's kept at bay because of her husband. Turns out, the doctor was able to heal Fred's wounds just fine. Well, after having to compensate for Fred's abnormally high blood alcohol content. Awkward. In the conference room, Janeway is brought up to speed by John Evansville, one of the three aliens she captured. He tells her that the Briori abducted over 300 people from Earth in 1937, and that those in the sacred altar are amongst their most revered. Janeway explains that their altar is just a stasis chamber, which kept the 37s preserved, and that if she could examine the Briori ship's technology, it may provide her with the answers to get Voyager home. Unfortunately, the ship was destroyed in his ancestors' rebellion, and all Evansville has to offer Janeway and the 37s is an invitation to stay in their three beautiful cities. And after leaving the conference room, he comes face-to-face with Earhart, who is getting a crash course in starship navigation. After returning from their tours of the cities, Janeway is faced with an impossible decision. How can she convince her crew to continue their perilous journey back to the Alpha Quadrant with no guarantee of their safety or even completing their mission, when there is a future for many of them on this planet. Chakotay reminds her that the pull for home is strong and that it is more powerful than she may realize. However, the fact remains, in order for Voyager to function, she needs at least a hundred to remain on board. Act 5. It is 1400 hours and Captain Janeway's announcement to the crew has been delivered, informing them that at 1500 hours, anyone wishing to stay on the planet should assemble in the cargo bay. In the mess hall... Neelix serves the 37s special meals of their own respective native earth dishes to make them feel more at home, while he, Voyager's crew, and the 37s alike all struggle with the choice before them. Harry confesses to Bellana that spending his whole life on a starship in the manner of trying to get back home isn't exactly what he had envisioned serving Starfleet. Bellana understands how he feels because she and many others feel the same way. On the surface, just outside of Voyager's landing zone, Janeway is lost in thought as Earhart approaches, letting the captain know that the 37s have decided to stay, because they believe they are deeply connected to them as the forebearers to the humans on this planet. After their discussion, Janeway returns to Voyager to await her crew's decision. As she and Chakotay walk through the empty corridors on their way to the cargo bay, they speculate on who will stay, or go, and why. And after a brief pause to ready themselves for the inevitable... Janeway opens the cargo bay door and is taken aback by seeing a completely empty room, visibly affecting her to the core. Upon returning to the bridge, Janeway doesn't skip a beat and orders her crew to depart the planet. And, as Voyager ascends, Evansville, Fred Noonan, and Amelia Earhart look up together and watch Voyager continue her journey home. The End all right, nicely done, as ever, Norman. And, uh, you know, look, I, I know there's a lot that we're going to bounce around, we'll come back to, uh, but I, I just got to say right at the outset, I, I love the bonkers setup of this episode. Like, like if we're going to get weird, let's just get weird. And I imagine somebody in the writer's room, and it's probably Brandon, just goes, how about a truck? in space (laughs) and it just has a weird like pulpy old school sci-fi feel to it because why not 
It reminded me of like seeing like Lincoln in space, you know, in the Savage Curtain. Yes. You know, yes. it's just like, where are we going with this? And if you're going to go with this, you better embrace it because you just can't, you can't just go halfway with it. You have to go all the way with it. Right. Um, right. Here's a, here's a small thing though. Mm-hmm. And I'm no scientist. So all the scientists out there of which I'm sure there are many, yep. you know, in our listening audience can either gas or oil survive the vacuum of space for 400 something years. Mm. I mean, I don't know how long the truck was floating around there. Right. I know the people were, they were, you know, but how did the truck get separated from the guy? Anyway, yeah. anyway, yeah, yeah. I digress. Yeah, we don't but, know. Yeah. You know, I'm sure like, you know, sometimes water gets mixed in with gas. Sometimes the oil gets mixed in with water. Water would obviously crystallize mm-hmm. and then the car would, wouldn't start. Right. Yeah. And then, and, and yeah, yeah, that, that would be one problem. Then, um, like, how much of it is it, how much of it is actually out there that Voyager could find it? Because space is right. big. They're going fast. <laughs> you know, uh, whatever. Oh, and then Tom starting up the car with, like, Harry looking at him. And then Tuvok, the funniest scene, I think, the entire uh-huh. episode was when the car, like, popped. And Tuvok whipped around with yeah. his phaser. Like, we're under attack. <laughs> right. Yes. right? Yeah. But it also reminded me of when, uh, in, in A Piece of the Ash, when Kirk, you know, finds the car. He goes, wheels, Mr. Spock. Yes. And then Spock goes, a flivver, Captain. Yes. I actually had, I had to look up flivver because I had no idea what flivver meant. But... I thought it was yeah, kind of funny. It's good stuff. Um, yeah. I, I will say, you know, uh, on the bridge, why aren't they always scanning for radio waves? Sounds like that's something you would do. You got sensors. You got so many sensors. Just scan. Just scan stuff because you never know. Somebody could be sneaking up on you and they right. have an old school radio. You know? I want to see like Data singing that song like Radio Waves. Yeah, right, right. Those little yeah. radio waves. Where are yeah. you? You should have a moment you like know? that. Yeah. All right. Yeah. We, we got to talk about this man. Landing Voyager. Oh, yeah. It's just, it's one of those. But do uh, well, we? Well, yeah, we do. We do. Because it's a nerdy <laughs> okay. thing that got me excited, as I'm sure it did many other fans, many other viewers. You know, I, I mean, All right. I, I, look, this show may not have been intended as a season opener, as intended as a season closer. But if you're just going to have an, an epic, iconic thing like landing a Star Trek, again, you just, a uh, starship, rather. You just go for it. You, you just do it. And by the way, it was done. They had a combination of CG and a little bit of practical model work thrown in there. So it, it was a pretty complicated thing. You have Dan Curry, Rick Sternbach, and Mike Kakuta to thank for that. And something that's cool is they actually built a five-foot foam model so they could go out to the location and just kind of like plot out where it would be but then they had to make certain concessions they had to scale it down a little bit they had to figure out like how to hide it a little how to obscure it and then how to hide the hollywood sign <laughs> because if they move ah. the camera too much it'd be like "Ooh, yeah hollywood <laughs> signs right there so oh, it, it, i i appreciate the attempt i mean to me it is it is a good sequence maybe not a great one in the respect the effects don't necessarily hold up today but it's very good it, it, it's an impressive attempt how, how do you feel about it mm. i felt seeing this was kind of akin to having the enterprise d separate saucer section versus battle section you know encounter at far point i mean i'm it's just because we don't get to see it enough obviously budget notwithstanding would we'll probably see it yeah. more but it always feels like What's the next best thing we can do to sell a toy? Hmm. Let's give it something yeah. with Kung Fu grip. Yeah, right. right. This is the Kung Fu grip right. version of what Voyager's toy needed. I'm not saying it doesn't work. I'm saying that if it were going to work properly, then how do they keep the entire like front <laughs> section of the ship from tipping okay, over? Okay, there, there, there's got to be an anti-grav something going on there because i'm just yeah you, you and i both have the eagle moss xl model and and if i right. if i walk into the room at the wrong angle that thing just drops down yeah yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> and i love it i, I love it i hate it yeah. when my, the, the nose of my voyager ship like hits the ground let alone hit the planet i know right I know. so yeah I'm just so there there is that and um uh, yeah well and like last week they did the whole thing with the with the nacelles you know uh, uh sort of tilting inward and it was sort of like so dramatic mm-hmm. but it's this tiny little movement and like you said it's just sort of like ooh, what can we get this ship to do that the toy can do later <laughs> yeah mm-hmm. so yeah, yeah. 
what I do like, though, in, in just terms of continuity standpoint, I like it when after they land and they do kind of like their investigation thing, they're all sitting around the conference room, but you see blue skies in the conference room windows. It, it's such a, a subtle like, but great thing. Yeah. Yeah. I'm like, what's going on? Oh, that's right. They're on a planet. Yeah. 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 I like that. Um, and it also gave uh, a chance for... You know, to, 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 to watch what we love watching in Voyager, and that's Kate Act. Yeah. And the whole thing about, you know, just kind of like the, the personal pride of, like, you know, um, uh, talking about Amelia Earhart's story, the first, you know, the first most famous woman in flight. Mm-hmm. That was amazing. It's just, it's kind of like you're watching her like, yes, keep talking about history yeah. more. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I do love uh, when they go back into the cave and they've they've decided to uh, thaw out the 37s and uh, Janeway's mm-hmm. sister Harry Kim uh, about the Japanese soldier. Uh, disarm him just to be on the safe side. And I wanted Harry to go like, hello there. May I say you look lovely this evening. That, that would be very Ah-ish. disarming, right? You know? Yeah. Shocking? <laughs> yes, you would. You know? Um, that that entire sequence was really good because you know after they did the uh, hypo sprays you saw like the nice thawing process mm-hmm. the warming process kind of like you know when Han came out of the carbonite mm-hmm. but a little bit cleaner yep. I thought it was kind of nice okay so here's something that either I didn't know didn't pay attention didn't read my Rick Sternbach Michael Kuda burgundy cover technical <laughs> manual enough but I did not know that the communicator pin was an outbound and inbound translator. Yeah, 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 yeah. Of every language. Right. Well, so that that's so interesting. I, I, I kind of always assumed, okay, it bounces back to the ship computer and then back to them or something like that. But then remember in uh, DS9, in um, uh, Little Green Men, they, the Ferengi have the translators in their heads. So they're they're banging mm-hmm. their skulls, you know, trying to. Uh, so yeah, but it was a cool idea. Um, but I also feel like the universal translator technology could be sort of whatever you want it to be from week to week. You know, fair point. I, yeah, I, I will yeah. say that when they do thaw out the thirty sevens and uh, Fred Noonan has a gun, uh, Harry should have just taken the shot. You know, he's set on stun. Just take the <laughs> shot, dude. Come on. You know, I do appreciate that we find out a little info that uh, on 20, 2103, we finally colonized Mars. So that's that's good to know. A little bit of Star Trek future history. David Graff, to me, will always be Tackleberry. So I'm just going to call him Tackleberry <laughs> from now on. Fair. And, of course, it would be only reflexive for Tackleberry to pull a revolver. Yep. Because he always yep. does. Right? Yep. And... I love that he's so he was so like fixed in being in the 1937s that you know the first person he would think about talking to or anyone talking to would be someone in Washington or J Edgar yes. Hoover I'm like yeah yeah and, and- that's a good detail. Oof, eh, nobody should want to talk to J. Edgar Hoover, uh, but, no. <laughs> but that, that was cool. I do have to point out though, for the historical record, there isn't actually good evidence that Fred Noonan was an alcoholic. The, uh, oh. People drank heavier at the time. Uh, that is true, mm-hmm. but but this idea that he was actually an alcoholic with a problem and/or was drunk during the flight—that was stuff that was speculated way, way, way later. That people actually knew him at the time said that that was not the case so you know but that's kind of been popularized in fiction and stories about them i I do have to point out like the uh, the outfits for the future humans pretty bad (laughs) i thought they they almost kind of looked like they're like the rejected versions of like what data was wearing in insurrection yeah right, right right they were not great they were not great yeah it's like you know, getting them passed through costumes, like, no, 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 make them cooler looking and red. That's what we'll go with. I don't know what you're going to do with these ones, these prototypes. Yeah. I don't know, use them somewhere yeah, else. Yeah, right? Yeah. I do love a moment uh, which is uh, undermining the whole deathbed confession scene. Like, I love that anytime it happens in a movie or TV show, this one was handled well, especially because you've got Bob Picardo there as the doctor, just like, oh, you're fine. <laughs> you know, handled nicely. Okay. It's very consistent in Star Trek or a lot of science fiction shows that you're using the metric system. But then Evansville says, you know, we have three cities only 50 miles from here. I'm like, I can't oh, handle this. I yeah. can't handle it. Like, is it going to be either is it's going to be metric system or imperial system? Which is it going to be and why? Because you're now you're just messing with my brain. Well, but it, but right? it, if those are descendants from exactly. primarily English speaking uh, uh, people from 1937, then would have been. 
mm-hmm. presumably mostly the imperial system. That, but, that's that's yeah, what yeah. I was thinking. But, but did it change over time? Like, did their uh, perception of that change? Yeah, it's all many unanswered questions about those descendants. Speaking of unanswered question, uh, we'll probably get into the cities mm, or, or not because they're kind of important <laughs> yeah, yeah. or not, you know, and, and, and why that was important. Mm-hmm. But also, you know, the whole thing with like Neelix, uh, first of all, Neelix saying Jell-O was hilarious. Yes. I, well, I love the whole right. call out to 20th century food. Great, great stuff. But did they have to serve the Japanese guy rice? Yeah. Right? Yeah. I mean, I okay. 1995 i get it right yeah. you know but it's kind of like that scene in galaxy quest where you know where taggart gets like the, the milk fed steak and the baked potato and then all of a sudden you know dr lazarus who is human gets the kreplopla ticks yeah right you know like it's <laughs> weird but here's like here japanese guy here's your rice yeah because only asians eat rice apparently on 20th century earth right yeah that 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 was uh, it was a little too on the nose there yeah as we get closer to the scene of uh you know janeway contemplating potentially losing some crew and and really opening up her heart to uh chakotay about this uh, i love her saying you know i don't want to lose anyone and then i thought Mm. Eh, except for a few of the Maquis, you know, you know, we just if they want to stay fine, there's less less work for Tuvok to do. Everyone wearing those pins just yeah. over there. <laughs> <laughs> you know, stand on that side of the yeah, ship. <laughs> right. 152 men and women. Like I liked hearing the specific crew compliment mm-hmm. uh, minus Seska and maybe a few other lost crew people. Well, yeah, because you think about it, I think in the pilot, I think the number was 143. But you lost okay. some crew, you gained Maquis, and you gained Neelix and Kess. So they're, they're right, adjusting right. that number appropriately. So basically, they could have lost around 50 people, and it would have been cool. Right. Like, and I'm sure there were around 50 Yeah, because the Maquis just, the they keep reproducing. Yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I liked hearing callbacks to Baxter. Mm. You know, mm-hmm. Baxter, who's the guy who was kind of like he was. Um, it's not. What's what's being racist to a hologram? Yeah, like bigoted. Right. Yeah, yeah. Uh, right to the doctor. You know, all the way back and eye the needle. And then Jarvin was the guy who was trying to plot the mutiny with Seska at the beginning of Parallax. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Good callbacks. Yeah. Yeah. Again, Kate. Uh, just stepping into that cargo bay mm. amazing oh just I've, amazing I've, you're just like yeah i've got notes on that yeah. for sure for but the most important thing that i'm concerned about before we go to the break is um does jack ever get his truck back if the truck was a 1936 model and disappeared with its owner in 1937 i may have a stack overflow error trying to calculate the outstanding interest on the loan We will rejoin the 37s in just a moment, but first a word from this week's sponsor, ExpressVPN. Hey, let me clue you in about something here. Watching your favorite streaming services without using ExpressVPN is like, uh, here's, here's what it's like, Norman. It's like going to a casino. And you can only play the slot machines. That's it. That's it. You can't touch anything else. Why would you limit yourself like that? Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's big money somewhere else, but you're there stuck at the slot machines. I I, I don't get it. So here's why you might use ExpressVPN to to mold that analogy back to what we're talking about. And that is that when you go on to your favorite streaming services, you are only getting a slice of what they have to offer. So like if I go to one streaming service and I look at the shows in another country – Oh, my God. You open up to so much more that isn't available to you here, wherever here may be for you. So without ExpressVPN, you're only getting access to a fraction of what they have to offer based on your location. Here's a learning moment, folks. And and we love providing you with learning moments, especially with products that we use. So how does ExpressVPN and block content? Well, if you're traveling and you know how to use your VPN correctly, you can change your online location. And then you control, say, where you're watching Netflix or where you're watching other streaming websites that you think or your VPN believes you're located. That's how this technology works, as far as I understand. And it's worked for me so far. Yeah, I, I think your understanding is uh, is right in line there. So here's how 
I might use it. Well, actually, here's how I do use it. All right. So all kinds of streaming services that I'm logged into. And then let's just say that I'm in the U.S., which I am. You would be correct if you said that. But let's say I want to watch Rick and Morty on Netflix, which I do. Then I can just set my VPN to think that I'm in Australia. And then, boom, I just open up the ExpressVPN app, change the country to one that I want. I wait about 0.5 seconds for that to connect. And then as soon as I refresh my uh, streamer page, boom, I'm on and I can watch whatever I want. So why would you want to choose ExpressVPN over other VPNs, say? I mean, if you want blazing fast speeds, if you want to stream HD with zero buffering, that's one of the reasons why you choose ExpressVPN. If you want it to be compatible with all your devices, your phones, your laptops, like all of your media stuff, that too, smart TVs, and all your tech. So be smart. Stop paying full price for streaming services and going, getting access to a fraction of their content. Get your money's worth at expressvpn.com slash mission log. Don't forget to use our link at expressvpn.com slash mission log to get an extra three months of ExpressVPN for free. All right, Norman, it is time to reconnect with uh, the people from our past, our collective past in the 37s. And um, why don't you kick us off? I, I, I kept sort of thinking about this episode and the way that we approach things on Mission Log and to, to dig deep for the morals, meanings, messages. This feels like more of a very personal kind of show, though, not, not, not the least of which is because we've got Janeway, who is so personally connected both to Amelia Earhart's story and the inspiration they got from that, but then the personal connection to her crew and what the prospect is of the changes there. So why, why don't you uh, lead us in here and uh, we'll, uh, we'll pick it apart for a few minutes. So looking at the narrative structure of this episode, you have this wonderful buildup of this mystery and this investigation. And then all of a sudden you have this wonderful narrative of who the 37s are and then Janeway being linked to Amelia Earhart's past because of who she is in history. And then all of a sudden you have this great moral conundrum with, wow, what am I going to do if my crew really wants to stay on this planet and create a life for themselves and not risk themselves for a 70 plus year journey that may or may not be successful because we, they are being tempted beyond temptation from these wonderful human evolved, beautiful cities that we didn't see. I, oh, that, <laughs> well, okay, that, that's a big problem. But, but mm -hmm. uh, hang on, hold that thought, yeah. hold that thought, because uh, I, I think that is something that is critical and important about how this story unfolds. But mm -hmm. let me ask you something real quick, mm -hmm. which is not going to be quick at all. <laughs> um, <laughs> what do you do in Janeway's position? Is it majority rule? If they need 100 people to crew Voyager... But if 53 people decide they want to stay, and that leaves you with 99, are those 99 then resigned to staying on that planet and carving out a life for themselves, which may not be a bad life. I mean, Voyager then just sort of becomes the flagship of this planet, and certainly they can share technology and cultures and all of this stuff. But what do you do? Do those 99 people then become resentful and hateful about their situation to being stuck. Okay, so if we really want to get down to brass tacks about what we believe Starfleet to be, mm -hmm. let's reference Janeway's specific quote from that, obviously, this climactic point like in her decision-making process in this episode. Janeway says, I know that, but at the same time, I can't take a vote every time there's a major decision to be made. We understand that. Yep. And yet, we're a long way from Starfleet, and a lot of the rules and regulations I've learned to uphold seem distant as well. Probably the first time we've heard her actually admit that. Mm. Right? Mm -hmm. the, the distance between her and her uh, accountability to Starfleet. Then she, this is the final point. Am I the only one who's so intent on getting home? Is it just me? Am I leading the crew on a forlorn mission with no real hope of success? Now, of course, that's the burden of command. Of course, that's the burden of making these decisions. But at the same time, though, if we're to believe that Starfleet isn't about majority rule, it's about what the captain says, then if the captain says... All Starfleet officers must report to the ship. 
That's the Starfleet way, isn't it? Isn't that the discipline that we've been hearing about these last few episodes, say, like in Learning Curve, the episode 15, the season finale? It's about teaching the Maquis how to do it the Starfleet way. Well, if the Starfleet way is you have to follow orders and there are 102 people and the rest can stay, 102 Starfleet officers have to report on duty at 1,500 hours. Yeah. Isn't that the Starfleet way? It, it is, but but here's what's so interesting about Janeway as a captain. And, and but we're gonna get back to the cities, believe okay. me. But but you, you <laughs> said it and I was just like, yeah. oh, we gotta dive into this, you know? Because that really is like the the heart of this episode. It, it is about Janeway, it is about this decision. And um and I just I love these moments of her opening up to Chicote. And even though there are positive or negative things we can say about Chicote at the very least he offers this very personal connection for Janeway to be able to express herself in a way that she can't to everybody else on the crew. She does a little bit of Tuvok, but we know that Tuvok is going to have a very different reaction to things because Tuvok is, of course, trying to stick with his uh, dedication to Vulcan logic at all times. Just the the openness and the vulnerability that Janeway has in that moment is so great. And even questioning herself, am I the only one so intent on getting home that she would potentially make a decision that is wildly unpopular with her crew but then yes as you just said that is the burden of command that she she has to make the decision but there's something great about her that is maybe a little different flavor than we've seen with other captains she offers to make that choice to her crew you know that there's something about um you know back in the old days we talked about the the kirk spock mccoy triumvirate and how that you know we have the id ego super ego or the ethos pathos logos representing the different arguments representing the different voices that need to be heard to make a decision but now the decision isn't just I'm going to listen to one or two close advisors. It's I actually need to consider the feelings of everybody on this ship from the top of my command chain to the very bottom. That that's huge. That that's massive. And I think for us then in the audience, we get to feel the weight of that decision. How different is that, John, than ramming speed? <laughs> Right? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Because the captain is deciding is for everyone deciding else. for everyone that this is what the decision is in order to stop this particular whatever. And I'm just going to ram the ship and, just, you know, all hands on board are going to, you know, die in service of Starfleet. Why is that decision any different? Yeah. Right? The, yeah. the, the captain's deciding the fate of her entire crew. It's just that, of course, obviously the circumstances aren't as dire. I understand that. But at the same time, though, this isn't a democracy. Yeah. Right. And I guess if you're a good Starfleet officer, then there is the part of yourself that you could resent that decision, but you also resign yourself to say, like, no, 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 I am part of a crew. I am part of something that is bigger than the sum of the parts, you know, and there is a mindset that goes along with that that isn't just purely selfish. You but know, I understand I, that when the, where the Maquis crew is involved, and, and we're going we're gonna to kick that city can probably to the end of this discussion, right? <laughs> well, we'll get but to this, it. This, <laughs> yeah. you know, but this brings up the question, though. Like, Starfleet, I understand, you know, we, we mentioned this before, that Starfleet is, you know, the, a military organization where you have a command structure, rank, etc. Or else, you know, you wouldn't have pips, you wouldn't have the nomenclature, the rank stripes, all that stuff. So this mm-hmm. brings up the, yeah, the issue with the Maquis. Think about, like, this. What if, what if Dalby said, you know what, I don't want to, I don't want to go, mm-hmm. right? I don't want to go back on Voyager because I, I don't want to serve under Tuvok. I think Tuvok's a jerk and he has yeah. a good point, yeah. you know. And then all of a sudden you have um, Garen and Henley and like all these other Maquis that are like going, you know, towards his cause, and he leads kind of like an uprising. And they are say because we don't know about sixty crewmen. Right, yeah. specialists in their field. Even if Janeway had 110 crewmen, what if none of them were specialists in warp field theory or yeah. tuning the engines or maintaining atmospheric control? What if those were like really like particular Maquis specialties? Uh, yeah, yeah, that, that could very you well know? be the case because we lost certain of Voyager crew 
just mm-hmm. by coming in to the, uh, to the Delta Quadrant. I mean, right. the, the entire were, command staff was lost. Was lost, exactly, <laughs> right. yeah. yeah. Just so, imagine, by the way, here's a scene that's playing out in my head, uh, that they, they make this decision and Dalby is the only one who wants to stay. So uh, Janeway brings him to whoever, uh, you know, the, the Earth, the 37's descendants, and says, hey, here you go. He's the only one who wants to stay, and they're just in awe. They're like, wow, he must be the best and the brightest to want to stay here in our city. And Janeway's like, yeah, sure. Absolutely. Take him. He's great. (laughs) But the, um, I guess, like, kind of like the dilemma is, you know, why would the Maquis stay? Right. And that's the thing is we we're I'm basing this off of our discussion that we had on learning curve where the Maquis obviously don't really feel like they fit in. So if they don't fit in, why risk it? What's the point? Yeah. There's literally like no yeah. incentives to stay on Voyager except for if you have some type of personal code of honor, like Balana. You know, yeah. But aside from that, hey, look, there are these wonderful cities that we're eventually gonna talk about. And then there's like there's food, there's sunshine, there's great weather, there's the possibility there's, of starting families. There's the purple costumes with the weird eye slit thing, you know. I mean, how yeah. would you I mean, why would you want to turn that down? Yeah. Right? <laughs> Um, I, I did find it interesting that um, I, again we we only get to know John Evansville a little bit, and um, and I, I didn't even mention uh, Berlin. Uh, that that's the the name of the the other human that we meet, the other human descendant that we meet. For for she any took stretch. my breath away, for example. So, ooh, you know, oh, just, yeah. nicely, nicely done. Well, she had to hop on the metro to get back to the city. That that was the thing. That's why we didn't <laughs> see much of her. And by the way, played by a stand-in. Uh, who was very often on set, but yeah, mm. it was interesting to me that the human descendants kind of had this this reverence. I mean, it stopped short of worship, but the, this reverence for the thirty sevens, but never really tried to learn anything about them, like. If they were alive, what does this machinery do? They didn't even go into uh, the, the caves where, where they were stored. Like, they just treated it as an altar, but nobody actually went there. I thought that was really kind of an odd choice for, for people who understood their uh, sort of their, their provenance. They understood why they were there. They understood who these people were, but their curiosity stopped at a certain point. And maybe it's just this kind of human need for something bigger than themselves that they turn those bodies into that. I thought that was a, a pretty interesting aspect of what was going on. That didn't get explored a whole lot, but um, but it, it was certainly convenient for the premise of the show. And I also thought that it was interesting that we dabbled a little bit, not not really in a prime directive question, but a sort of prime directive adjacent. I mean, here's Voyager showing up and just meddling. You know, we're going to pop into this uh, alien building. Oh, look, it's humans. There are people. What should we do? Well, I guess we'll thaw them out. <laughs> I guess we'll we'll find out. Not, not you know, send a shuttle in the atmosphere to go find out. Are there other people here? Are there aliens who actually indeed did capture them? Are they still waiting around? They, they just decided to, to jump in. I guess the entirety of um, the Prime Directive's non-interference with a pre-warp civilization just doesn't take effect here maybe uh, maybe <laughs> not maybe not you know? yeah yeah they we, we kind of glide right by that um yeah. but but certainly they are there and they are making a difference i will tell you one thing that that i thought was kind of a cool parallel in this story is that um it reminded me of the tng episode the neutral zone um mm. just because it, it's a convenient way for star trek to do a little like sly condemnation of 20th century humans you know the the first thing that happens when they get woken up is all right guns are drawn the uh the distrust the paranoia comes right to the surface and of course that's uh that's what we don't want to think about ourselves but that is probably a very realistic depiction of what would happen all right on to the cities (laughs) all right let's let's bring it home Yeah, yeah so yeah you know, it, it just in terms of, I don't know, and I'm not going to presume to know anything about, you know, how to project a television budget, but I do believe that in the course of balancing 
one element that probably costs some money versus another element that probably costs some money. Use the element that tells your story better. Use the element that, or use the budget to explain something that I think is a very central part of why Janeway was forced to be in this predicament at the end, to possibly lose her crew. Because the temptation to stay on this planet has to be explained. It has to be shown. There's a reason why, you know, in, uh, in, in much of science fiction where you see just these otherworldly experiences where we project of ourselves like, I really, I really wish I was there. I want to be there. I want to be yeah. on that planet. I want to experience what they're experiencing. But instead they went for struts and hiding half of the ship behind a mountain right i mean do you really i don't i don't think that was a good decision because janeway's like i don't think my crew is going to stay because we landed on the planet no i don't think my crew is going to stay because they found something that's just like earth yeah right well why would i want to you know why would i want to risk 70 years of blackness or i could hang out here Right, I, I can I can tell you this. I mean, you and Bran and Braga are very much on the same page about that, and and that was one of those last minute decisions where it kept going back and forth. Is it a two parter? Is it a one parter? Is it a two parter? And by the time they finally like boiled down the script, they were literally just out of time to create what presumably would have been that what, what would have been the show don't tell aspect of it let me ask you this though because this is really the question for for us at the heart of the story and for our listeners you know if you had let's just make up a number if you had a 50, 47 okay if you had a 47 percent <laughs> chance of getting home <laughs> in under 70 years Okay, because at best right now, just given the technology, given no special circumstance to get you home faster, right? But if you had a 47% chance of getting home, but a 100% chance of staying on what is presumably a pretty cool planet and having a pretty good life, what do you take? I'd stay on the planet. Yeah. Honestly, and, and, and my, my, my rationale is, my reasoning is that in 70 years, everything that I loved about my life on Earth is going to be gone. Mm-hmm. Right? I mean, like, that's me personally. Like, I don't have children. I don't have, I did, you know, um, and Carol, you know, who, mm-hmm. I mean, if this is like a real world situation, right? Yeah. You yeah. know, that is assuming that I actually get back. Yeah. Right? So I'm, well, actually, if I was serving a Starfleet plus 70 years, I'd be dead. Yeah. Right. Right? You know? Right. Right. I'd be 130 years old. Well, maybe not dead, <laughs> but I'd be pretty damn old. Yeah, right. right? You know. Right. So why not? There's there's a hundred percent of a future that you can make, and there's the remote possibility of a future that could exist. Now I understand, like Chakotay says, you know, swimming in the Gulf of Mexico, which I've never done, so I don't know. I don't have the. But like you know, watching a sunrise, uh, you know, and in the uh, Appalachian Valley, which where you know I grew up, you know, in the tri-state area of Ohio. Yeah, sure, it's beautiful. Yeah, but you know what? So is seeing that every day and not the blackness of space. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, let me sweeten right? the deal. Let me sweeten the deal. Ooh, sweet. Yeah, you can stay on that planet. Voyager stays with you, presumably, if you have a majority uh, that, that want to stay there. And then, look, it's only a few weeks ride away back to the pleasure planet. So you can just hang out there whenever you want. Here's the other thing. It's like, if I want to see that sunrise... Just hook up the hologram. Like the, the, yeah. I'd hook up the holodeck and just watch the sunrise. And then you know exactly. what? If I don't like that, I'll just go outside and watch a real sunrise. <laughs> Voyager's crew doesn't know how lucky they are that they didn't have to deal with Ralph Offenhouse. So we've made it to the end of... The 37s. Is it the 37s or is it apostrophe 37 or is it 37 apostrophe S? I'm not quite sure. <laughs> what what do all of you are the educated listeners out there? Because I don't get it, John. I understand what they're trying to get to. There are people from 1937 that have populated this planet because they were taken by aliens. And now we have seen their plight. We have seen their struggle. We have seen people from history. But at the same time, though, there is a real-world consequence that we're talking about, and that's what we discuss here at the end of Mission Log. We look at the episode. Does it hold up? Does it withstand the test of time? And does it give us or offer us any insight through its morals, meanings, or messages? So let's take a look at the 37s, John. Yeah, look, I mean, normally 
I don't love stories that go out of their way to kind of rewrite history or introduce conspiracies or to weave aliens into everything, but I can't help but just have this huge soft spot in my heart for this episode. It, it's Star Trek, but it also has these kind of pulp sci-fi elements to it, like I mentioned. You know, I, I can just I can picture a vintage novel or a sci-fi magazine with a painting of a spaceship encountering a beat-up old truck. Like that it's it's just an image that sticks with you as weird as bonkers as the premise is. I just want to run with it. I just want to go with it here. And I do think that the use of historic figures here is pretty good and pretty thoughtful. There's just a lot to like with them, how they are used in the story. Um, Also, like the movie First Contact, this is another one of those great situations where uh, the aliens, or in this case, the humans from the past, they are us. So we get to look at the Star Trek world through their eyes, which is a nice bit of perspective change uh, as opposed to us, the audience, always being Starfleet in this case. Gives a little bit of a mirror image there. And and very honestly, as you and I have been talking, I uh, can easily see how this would have been a two-parter, or I even take it a step further and say a novel, you know, where you could really flex the imagination, you could really go to different places and just have that unlimited budget of imagination to to see everything that we don't get to see. This could have been very effective as a cliffhanger. Do they stay? Do they go? That's you know really the question ultimately here. But yeah, like you said, Norman, you know, we didn't get to see the cities. We don't know the reaction of those people in the cities to the 37s. I thought it was so interesting that there is this kind of reverential attitude that they had. We don't know how the descendants evolved over those 300 plus years. How human-like to us are they? How different are they? And what does that then say about humanity and its ability to evolve? So many unanswered questions, and all of them I find fascinating. So, John, uh, yeah. if I can jump in here, they, yeah. they didn't—they uh, didn't evolve past the imperial system. That's what we know. Oh yeah, we know that. They, they still use miles, inches, and feet. Probably they probably still have dollars. We don't even—we we don't know. We don't know, but we would have to find out. Um, but uh, certainly, this episode gives us a lot of cool stuff to talk about, and and there was so much of that that Brandon wanted to explore and wanted to show. Uh, if they had extended this out into his originally intended two-part episode episode and man i gotta say i love janeway in this episode we see we get to feel her astonishment at the situation we get to feel the difficulty of her command and just the very real very emotional weight that is on her shoulders so we've seen kate be tough as nails as janeway but then to see that balance with something like this is just Wonderful. So I cannot help but love this episode. How about you? I like this episode a lot. I don't love okay. it. Okay. I like Fair. it a lot. I, I find there's a lot of charm in this episode. And I think that's what you were alluding to with seeing the truck at the very beginning and just seeing kind of like the the distant future and the distant past kind of colliding. Uh, I know that this isn't jumping the timeline because I'm talking about real world, real world marketing. And it's that... It was that poster of Strange New Worlds where you see the Enterprise off in the distance, but you see Pike on a horse in the foreground. You have literally like the the most primitive way that man would actually travel at one point, and the most futuristic way in the same in, in the same scope in the same spectrum, right, you right. know, in this fixed piece of art. So it's very interesting to see. Yes, the, uh, the the pickup truck was a little jarring at the beginning, given kind of like the nature of where effects were at the time. Uh, no different than, again, seeing like Abraham Lincoln pop up in the Savage Courage, which I <laughs> mentioned earlier. I think that the production value is very good. I, I thought that seeing Amelia Earhart's plane there was really nice. Uh, I liked the, the sacred shrine slash cryostasis chamber that the 37s were housed in. I thought that was really mm-hmm. well done. The composite shot of Voyager on the planet that really forced that's a big ask yeah it really it, it, it doesn't you age your disbelief yeah it doesn't age well no right. yeah, right. yeah 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 but no. but at the same time though you're you're you already believe in the conceit that there's a starship so why mm-hmm. not believe in the conceit that the starship can land right it's just yeah. that's a very kind of nitpicky thing and i say that because 
that's my biggest sticking point with this episode. And I've mentioned mm-hmm. it, you know, before. It's that I would have rather them focus on what caused the dilemma at the very end of this episode to begin with, and that is the temptation of staying. Yeah. If you don't show that, you really lose a lot of the narrative power and your ability as the audience to connect with the plight of the decision-making process and what Janeway mm-hmm. is going through. Because all of a sudden, you know, if Azenzil Lake says, you know, 50 miles from here, you're going to see our cities. And all of a sudden, Janeway is in the next scene in her ready room saying like, wow, that was amazing. What am I going to do? And really, the, the, the imagery is really hard to, to, to grapple with in the in-between. Like, what did they look like? Why were they so difficult to leave? Yeah. What did they offer the people that were going to stay? So those are still, I think, for me, unresolved um, parts of the narrative. But at the same time, though, knowing the behind the scenes, knowing kind of like the machinations of what could have been, that's what makes it for me just a good episode. And what I think could have potentially been an amazing or great two-parter. Mm-hmm. Or like you said, John, like a novelization or a short story. Yeah. Because you need to flesh out the characters. You need to, you know, to um, have that the motivation there that you as a character, as, as an audience member, would believe in. And that's the thing. We just don't believe in why people would choose to stay. Yeah. Yeah. Agreed. All right. So morals, meanings, messages. I mean, the, I think there there is a... A struggle here, but is there a a lesson here? You know, I really, really tried with this one, and and we've mentioned this before on Mission Log. Sometimes, or many times, not every episode is going to have the format of presenting the you know the moral tale in an mm-hmm. episode. I tried, and I, and I looked, and it was an exercise in what if for me. Maybe there's a no place like home message here but again that's very subjective because not everyone believes that home is where they are maybe home is where they are going to be someone doesn't really and you don't really know until you're there i just wanted to like reiterate that i i do think that if there was the temptation to stay on the planet that would create that home that create like the, the no place like home emotional connection then maybe i really wanted to see more of the maquis struggle in this episode, mm. right? Mm-hmm. Because not everyone on Voyager believed in the Starfleet way. And again, coming off of learning curve, we, you, you felt that there was a huge disparity or division between Starfleet way and Maquis way. Th- this was the opportunity for them to really find the answer to that. And I, I think that maybe the moral here was like, you know, sometimes home is where you create the environment of being able to trust the people that you're with. Yeah. Voyager is going to eventually become their home. And I wish that they were able to hone in more on that message saying, you know what? I can count on you. You can count on me. This is the found family moment where Mm. we're all going to pull on the oars together. And that's the reason why there was no one in the cargo bay when Janeway opened up that door, because behind the scenes, her family, her found family, this new mixed crew found whatever they needed to find in a conversation that they had about the cities that didn't offer them that one special thing that they could only have if they worked together. That's why that city scene is so crucial because it's, it really is the missing element of why the Maquis and Starfleet crews had to come together to go back on Voyager. Interesting. And and again, a perfect example of uh, you and I not reading each other's notes <laughs> because we, we, we <laughs> found similar things, I think, phrased a little bit differently. And I, I'll preface by saying this, that, you know, for, for all the really high-minded stuff that science fiction asks of us, that we get to deal with speculative ideas about our futures, we get to deal with complex moral and ethical issues, and we we get to dream about technologies and, and possibilities that maybe feel far off from us now. None of that is important at all unless we have buy-in with the characters, with the people, and with, with the, the hearts of those characters, 
that actually take us through the story. Because if we don't connect with them, then it's just uh, ideas on a page. It, it, you know, it, we actually have to have that that human connection to the characters to then get into the story. So an episode like this, I think, does that very well, where. You can come along from left field with some crazy science fiction idea, but you also have to have episodes like this one where you just go like, ooh, but it's just about the heart. It's just about the people because then that propels us to the next thing. It allows us to say, but yeah, I'm on this mission with them because I get what they see in each other. I see myself as part of that crew. I see myself having similar reactions, similar emotions to them. So this is one of those episodes. Yeah, it's not a you see Timmy moment. There's not a you see Timmy kind of message that hits you on the head. But what we get is this genuine emotional look at the stakes for Janeway's command decisions, just who she is as a person. And she deeply cares for this crew and for the mission in ways that I feel like we have heard about in other series, but we don't necessarily always feel. And, you, you know, you, you said it, Norman, it's like when a captain calls for, you know, ramming speed or self-destruct. Well, wait a minute, but there's other people on board. And here we get to see a captain deal with that. I honestly got a lump in my throat seeing Janeway at that moment of relief when she sees the empty cargo bay because the build-up to that moment is solid and it drives home one of the premises of this whole series like you just said norman that friends are the family you choose and this crew may have been forced together but they have chosen to have each other's backs they have chosen to work for the good of each other and they have in every way formed a family bond Mission Log is produced by Roddenberry Entertainment. If you would like to support us directly, you can do so at patreon.com slash missionlog for early access to shows and the Mission Log Discord. Our website is missionlogpodcast.com. And for more Star Trek news and discussion, visit trekmovie.com. On the next Mission Log, Initiations. Some of the music for Mission Log provided by Warp 11, online at warp11.com. Special thanks to consulting producers, Adam Brusky, Matt Esposito, Homer Frizzell, John Mann, Mike Richards, and Mike Schabel. What would have made this a whole different episode, a space Winnebago instead of a space truck? transmission. This is a Roddenberry podcast. For more great podcasts, visit podcast.roddenberry.com.